This is a word fitly spoken by words about reading the scriptures, about preaching the scripture, and about the mission on which the scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His Holy Word. I'm Willie Grills, here as always with Zelwyn Heidi, joined today by Reverend Adam Coons out of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. How's it going, gentlemen? It's going pretty well. Good, good. Uh, we usually talk about the weather because we're stereotypical Lutherans of a certain geography like that. So how are things... How are things in Pennsylvania right now? They are completely soaked and to some extent flooded. So, yeah, I'm coming to you from a very drenched Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I I do want to add, having said that, that I have direct feedback from listeners about how much they enjoy this portion of each program. So we're actually going to be (laughs) discussing the weather for the first 20 minutes. I have the barometer readings at hand ready to go. And then I want to I want I, I may I want to make sure that we finish up with like you know hog prices. So if you have those <laughs> that's <reading>. right <laughs> and crop reports. Sweet corn is coming in here, by the way, on the honor system. Put a jar, get as many ears of sweet corn as you want. Leave the money there. We trust you here in Western Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> Zellin, how about up your way? Getting a little bit dry. Had a fire the other day, but. We've also had some really big storms, so it's just kind of a wild year. I'm I'm kind of surprised to hear that this is a favorite portion. <laughs> <laughs> people people love this stuff. They want to know that we are human beings and not just voices in the ether. So right, it it, it does matter. We are we are beings occupying space and time in specific locales. Well, my humanity is in question, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Little known fact, Zell and Heidi can actually biolocate. <laughs> you have to be able to do that. The distances are so great in the Dakotas. <laughs> it's, it's an acquired skill, but anyway. Right. Uh, Speaking of biolocation, we are here today to talk about CFW Walther and the Lord's Supper. So that, that is what has brought us here. This is continuing our discussion of CFW Walther's pastoral theology. And the Lord's Supper, obviously a very popular topic within both confessional and other forms of Lutheranism, really Christianity at large. This is a topic that we go back to. A lot of disagreement, a lot of conflict over the Lord's Supper, but I think we're going to see, well, I know we're going to see from these episodes that the Scriptures speak very clearly about matters concerning the Lord's Supper, and that C.F.W. Walther does rightly expound the scripture when it comes to the sacrament of the altar. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah, and I want to start out by saying that it's interesting. You can always tell when something is under-discussed or under-theologized based on the level of dissension within a church that should otherwise agree on it. So, like, if you go to a Missouri Synod church and they practice open communion, that is really no particular pastoral responsibility in connection with the administration of the Lord's Supper, they will usually have some kind of statement in their bulletin or worship folder or whatever, specifying that this church believes that the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ. Now, within American Christianity, that's honestly not that common of an opinion, but they're generally pretty clear that they believe this. It's it's not really controversial within the LCMS that 
the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ. I would say it's not at all controversial. That's a settled doctrine because we hammer it home, right? It's interesting that that has been controversial in other forms of Lutheranism in America where it was not hammered home and where, therefore, Lutheran churches capitulated to a surrounding atmosphere of a variety of sub-biblical positions on the nature of Christ's bodily presence in the Lord's Supper. Right, right, right. So before we move on into the discussion of open communion then, what would a typical communion statement then look like in, say, the bulletin or an announcement in a Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, perhaps using our congregations as examples? You mean like if you're like doing what you're supposed to do? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, if you're you're living out your vocation properly. So mine says, for instance, that communion at Mount Calvary is for members of Mount Calvary and for members of other Missouri Synod congregations in fellowship with Mount Calvary and her pastor. So that involves a profession of belonging, of faith, of common life, which is overseen by the pastor. And then he is in communion with other LCMS congregations and ministers, and that's what walking together is supposed to mean. Sure, yeah. Mine says the exact same thing, pretty much, except in Spanish. Zelman, <laughs> how, about, how about yours? I'm sure it's very similar. It is. It's just space is a premium on my bulletins for reasons of economy. I know that's hilarious thing coming from a Scandinavian. <laughs> Um, <laughs> everything is a matter of economy for a Scandinavian. Everything is a matter of economy. <laughs> but, you know, more or less getting to the same point, just in fewer words. I do, just because of my particular context, make a habit of actually announcing it, more or less, what's in the bulletin, depending upon who's there that day. I will actually verbally mention our communion statement. But again, you know, it's it's a little bit easier when you have an entire room full of catechized Lutherans and not too many visitors or visitors who you know are coming from other LCMS congregations, for example. I do think that makes a difference. You know, if I have all my confirmed people and that's the only people in church that day, I'm probably not going to read it aloud because that's where we are. Right. They they know the drill and we got to get community going. So, but it's probably fair to say though, that the, def- and that's not that I don't, you know, fence the table. I'm just saying that, when everybody there is confirmed, I know every person and in a congregation is a mission as small as mine. I know them, so I only read it aloud when necessary. But it would be fair to say that the de facto position of most American churches today is an o- open communion, an open altar. Now, what would it, what does open communion mean then? Open communion means that communion is happening, is being administered, but depending on the church— there either is an active disavowal of what should be practiced. That would be the case with open communion within the Missouri Synod or the Roman Catholic Church or an Eastern Orthodox Church. Or there is no other way to practice communion other than open. And I, I've seen this personally. I saw this in a Presbyterian church where you know, they said, please only take communion if you're a baptized believer, but nobody's checking. So right, who has right. any idea, you know? Yeah. And that's even in a conservative, quote unquote, confessional Presbyterian right. group, too. You, you'll see that. Yeah. I think you'd have to get into some fairly radical churches to get where they would take absolutely anyone. 
I mean, even even if it's just a nominal kind of you need to be baptized sort of a thing, they're at least saying we want you to be a Christian. Sure, you know, but in a lot of American Christianity, you don't even get any kind of question or or really the idea that this is prohibited in a lot of cases. Yeah, so like in my own personal experience, you have the you have the caveat within the Episcopal Church that you should be baptized in order to receive communion. There's a movement that's pretty popular now called radical hospitality, which is popular in many mainline denominations where anyone can be communed of any religion, any baptized or unbaptized status, whatever, right? Radical hospitality. My parish church in the Episcopal Church did not practice radical hospitality, but I invited a Buddhist friend to church with me. This is actually the last Episcopal service I ever went to. And it was Ash Wednesday, and we went up for communion, and my Buddhist friend like came with me, and she was communed. I mean, she has absolutely no stake or interest in Jesus Christ, but she was communed simply because no one was checking. So the question you have to ask yourself with open communion is, how many times has that happened at a Missouri Synod church? Or something where we would, where like the pastor would actually be like horrified if he knew what he were doing, but because right, nobody right. is checking, you're effectively doing the same thing the Episcopal Church does. Yeah. It's just that the Episcopal Church is now saying something more like radical hospitality. We're welcoming anybody. Well, if you're not checking, you're welcoming everybody regardless. Yeah. Well, let me let me give an example from a conservative Presbyterian church, and really a very conservative Presbyterian church, which is what I belong. To you know, Adam, I took similar streams to the Lutheran Church, but a little bit different. So, in this very conservative Presbyterian church body, they basically did you know any baptized believer may commune. But again, there's no real questioning there. So, I'll tell you the most egregious story instead of the milder story because it's more fun. But the pastor went around, communed the people. Then afterwards, he's talking to a visitor who was a baptized Christian, but come to find out, he was also currently a practitioner of what he called Native American folk religion, <laughs> which we would call paganism, Oof. right? And but simply because you open that door up in an otherwise conservative group to all those who have been baptized and who feel ready to partake, now you've given it to someone who is worshiping other gods. Demons. Demons. Yes. Yeah, that's, there we that's, go. That's, yeah. that's the word can't, can't stress that enough. That's God, the word poignant. Yeah, gods with a, with a little g. Yeah, absolutely demons. Yeah. So no question about that. Now, of course, in this case, did the pastor absolutely believe that in some sense the table should be fenced? Yeah, he did. But that fence is so small that anybody, any munchkin could hop over it. <laughs> and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, it's funny, not funny, right? But I mean... Right. The, the, the thing the thing you wonder is like, well, how often does this happen? And the terrifying answer is nobody knows, right? So Hebrews right. thirteen seventeen is telling you that pastors have to give an account for the souls under their charge. But what our experience is telling us is that many pastors have absolutely no idea what's happening when communion is administered. Oh, come on now. Pastors and teachers aren't judged with stricter judgment. That's law talk. You're speaking the way the law, Adam. Is, yeah. It's in the right. Bible, friend. In the Bible. Got to deal with it. Have to take it for what it's worth. Not many of you should become my brothers, you know? 
Uh, <laughs> it's James. We don't have to pay attention. No, we don't have to pay attention to James. Yeah. So, yeah, now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, James 3-1. So if you want to look that up and try to twist it, there it is. And so we're so then now we're brought then to this peculiar distinctive of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as she is called to practice according to our official doctrinal statements and understandings. And that brings us to CFW Walther. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to stress from the outset that Walther's teaching on communion is both consistent with current LCMS official teaching. And it also takes place within a religious environment, which is not as drastically different as the listener might believe from today's, because then, as now, open communion is the absolutely standard, common, presumed practice within American Christianity, such that Walther addresses it directly and addresses the motives of pastors who practice open communion Lots of things that we'll get into are going to sound eerily familiar to the listener, and we opened up with this contemporary discussion, even of our own experiences, because it's pertinent to Walther's situation, because Walther's situation is really ours. Oh, certainly. Yeah, it's not entirely different. We can say to to a degree ours might be worse, but everything that we're dealing with today was certainly present in Walther's day for, for a number of reasons. The LCMS comes about at a time where... American Christianity is experiencing great change. And this is during the tail end of the Second Great Awakening, which we have an entire other podcast coming up on. And I don't think we can underestimate the changes that American Christianity undergoes during the first to a lesser degree and then to the greatest degree during the Second Great Awakening. And you do see these great calls for unity and these great calls for compromise when it comes to supposed secondary doctrines. And that is where a lot of America's preference for open communion comes from. Distinctiveness, when it comes to doctrine and practice, is seen as division within the body of Christ. Now, what would you guys say to that? I'd have to say that it sounds pretty much like what we encounter all over the place and very often even within our own congregations. I mean, because you get the the notion that if we're going to be Lutheran, uh, we're going to end up teaching something in addition to what it means to be like a basic Christian. Like we're adding on top of basic Christianity, all of the, quote, weirdness of Missouri Synod Lutheranism. So, I mean, it's absolutely still in play. And as a result, when people come in and hear that they can't commune, because of uh, our policy of closed communion, they take it as an affront. You know, you're saying that I'm somehow not a Christian. Right. And I, I think that that is also because the pastor is presumed in American Christianity to be merely a preacher, such that his pastoral oversight of the faith and life of the congregants, which is where the Missouri Synod's understanding of closed communion comes out of. It really proceeds from the understanding that the pastor is not only teacher, not only preacher, not only exhorter, but also steward and bishop and confessor. That role for a pastor is uncommon 
if not altogether absent from most American Christianity. And therefore, the notion that he somehow has oversight, that he keeps watch over your soul, according to the passage from Hebrews that I cited earlier, doesn't make any sense to people, which is why close communion doesn't make any sense to them, because they have because their Christianity floats free from any attachment to any particular accountability. It's pure individualism and pure subjectivism. Yeah, it is. And it only becomes really, and I, I, I think it's a fair point that it is actually worse in our day, because it only becomes worse the longer we go on in, in American Christianity. So like, whereas you could have enterprising preachers who would gather people at revivals or, you know, camp meetings or whatever. Now they have established churches where they are enterprising preachers and they get, you know, 10,000 people live and then so many others streaming online every Sunday. American Christianity centers around enterprising preachers who have no spiritual knowledge of the people who are listening to them. Right. And and no biblical authority perhaps. Yeah, I mean what what are they? They are they are proclaimers, but within the Bible you find so many other roles within the office of the ministry that it cannot be reduced simply to the man who is speaking publicly. Yeah, who is talking at that moment, right? Yeah, so so you would say that at the heart of our issues with closed communion is an issue with biblical authority. It's an issue with biblical authority because it's an issue of understanding that the Bible has a vision for Christian life, which is communal and which is authoritatively structured for the blessing and the growth of the individual Christian and the Christian congregation. And that the oversight given to God's stewards within this structure is fruitful for those people and for the stewards. And that without those things, the kind of egregious errors that we discussed anecdotally earlier are totally unavoidable because we are therefore living outside of God's order for oversight. And in doing so, we're not going to find blessing. We're instead just going to find, at the very least, massive confusion and and probably a lot worse. Yeah, it is interesting. It goes right back to the Garden of Eden with Eve seeking to usurp. You know, it's no coincidence that in the great age of revivalism in the United States, you had people downplaying Paul's admonition that pastors, or the Bible's admonition, excuse me, the Holy Ghost's admonition, that only men should be pastors. Once It's just very interesting. Once you start messing with the created order in any way, you start jettisoning all kinds of essential aspects of the pastoral office and really essential doctrines of the Christian faith. And it's pretty easily proven. Yeah, and I, I think that it's important to say that the stuff that we're going to discuss later on in the show, it's not really easy for anyone to swallow because the way that Walther is recommending practicing communion is not really quite what really anyone does. And we'll explain what those you know nuances and differences are. I think it's also important to say that the existence of open communion, especially within churches that should know better and do better, is not in and of itself, like the sole indicator of spiritual health or sickness, 
it is one massive symptom among others of a capitulation to worldliness, which is almost always indicative of some other massive dissension, confusion, degeneracy within the life of a congregation. Because it's not just an issue of, are you conforming to LCMS policy or are you not? It is a symptom also of rejection or acceptance of God's order for the church in the same way that relationships between men and women, especially within the family, and how they talk about each other and how they live their lives together, is an acceptance or a rejection of God's order for the family. And when you reject both those things, there are some symptoms that are particularly glaring about the modern revolt against God's order and a revolt against the idea that pastors are actually overseers of people's souls and not just talking heads, that's one big indicator. So what we're talking about tonight has ramifications way beyond just what should be in your bulletin and how should things go when the sermon is over on Sunday morning. Right. It's not, it's not simply just a signal of orthodoxy or a signal of right practice, right. a dog whistle, if you will, that that, hey, we're doing the right thing. This is a confession that in not doing what we're called according to God's will, we are. It, it's a symptom of usurping right, exactly. God's created order. That's in a nutshell is what we're saying. So we've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you're hearing and want more, visit us at wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find our blog with lots of interesting articles, exegesis, sermon prep, and history. www.wordfitlyspoken.org And we're back. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi and Adam Kuntz, talking CFW Walther and the Sacrament of Holy Communion. So we come now, then, to a discussion of CFW Walther's words proper. But we're going to talk now about announcement for communion, something that is, would you guys say, pretty rare today, as far as congregational practice goes? Certainly in the way that Walther is talking about it, it's extremely rare. I think that people announce for communion by saying they're from such and such, you know, Missouri Senate congregation or whatever it may be. But the way Walther's talking about it, which involves the pastor making some examination of what they believe and this kind of thing, that is very rare today. Yeah. So when Walther says announcement... He's not just talking about visitors or something like that. He's talking about all of the sheep under the pastor's care. So what does Walter mean by announcement? Yeah, he means people coming to the pastor before taking communion. He recommends that this happens, you know, generally at least once a year. So he's he's not he's not talking really about sins particularly burdening somebody's conscience. There's a distinction for him between announcement and what we would now call private confession. 
when the communicant comes, Walther wants the pastor to make sure that the communicant knows why he's going to the sacrament, that he knows what the sacrament is, particularly that he confesses the Lutheran church and doctrine to be the true Christian church and doctrine. These are all things that are very important to Walther, and this is what he sees the pastor's work in preparing the people for communion as, is really getting them to announcement. They don't have to do it constantly, but they need to do it, and they need to do it you know, at least once a year. Right, and even for Walther, or even in Walther's day among Lutherans, this is not the most popular practice. No, not at all. In fact, it's pretty common among non-Missouri Synod Lutherans in Walther's day that announcement really didn't exist. And and, it, and in some cases, let's be honest, it never existed in churches with the name Lutheran on them. It's important to say for both LCMS listeners and non-LCMS listeners, the LCMS has always been rather distinctive from the very beginning in, and, and self-consciously so. Walther knows that the things he's saying are not going to be necessarily common or even known in the congregations to which the men whom he's training at Concordia Seminary St. Louis will be going. And so he's equipping them beforehand with a knowledge of both their distinctiveness and the reason for it. So as Missouri Synod Lutherans, would we say that announcement for communion from the pastor's perspective is necessary? And what I mean by that is, ought a pastor to be examining his flock when it comes to their reception of the Lord's Supper? Well, certainly they should. he should have an awareness of what it is that his flock believes. Maybe, maybe the question boils down to, do we want to have it in a right that we, you know, that we do this in? And, you know, maybe that's a case of where it doesn't have to be something quite so formal. But a pastor being a, a watchman of Israel is, has to be aware of what's actually going on under his care. And how he actually makes that examination is probably a little less important as, as the fact that he is actually doing it. Yeah, and I think that he presumes, rightly so, that a pastor will know what is going on in people's lives, at least to the extent that the guy who is practicing open communion is doing it against his own conscience. Because he's got this really great quote about people practicing open communion. He says, it is to be feared that many surrender the Holy Sacrament. That's a really crucial verb there. Many surrender the Holy Sacrament to everyone and even serve it to the godless because they also want to be in good standing with the godless. So they know what they're doing. And he goes on, they do not want to bring the anger and hatred of the world upon themselves and do not want to lose their somewhat lucrative pastorate. <laughs> different time. Right, different right, time. right. Well, I mean, I, he he's saying that the guy knows what he's doing. He knows that not everything is good to go with everyone who's showing up, but the guy is still giving out communion simply because he wants to maintain peace, ease, whatever other things it is that he would might not enjoy if he does not commune everyone who comes up to the table. Right. And that rings true today. 
I mean, down to this day, that is true. It's easier for the pastor to make this false peace with the world and say, this is what we're going to do, than it is to be faithful. And it's often under the guise, though, of love, right? They say, well, we just want everyone to know the gospel. We want everyone to know the love of Christ and what he has done. And then in doing so, they extend the elements, which are not reserved for everyone, which are only for Christians. They extend those things to all of the world in in, in a sort of misguided understanding of love for the gospel. Yeah, and it's so crucial to realize that when people do not have a good reason for something, they often have a good slogan, which is comforting, which is justifying to them, and which sounds nice to the people around them, because the people around them are also not thinking clearly about what this person is doing. So when they say that they're practicing open communion because it's more loving, they never stop to think, is that why Jesus instituted communion? Or did he not already ordain his word to be preached to everyone and instituted communion, particularly for the comfort of repentant sinners who are, according to the Bible's understanding, within a Christian congregation, which has a pastor who has watch over those souls? Or when he says loving, does he just mean the thing which is most emotionally easy for me and for this this person that I'm not refusing to serve communion to? Right, and and so we come to a, to a very very simple fact that God does ordain a means into all to to everyone, and that is the preaching of His Word. Everyone is called to hear and receive that which is being preached would it be would it be fair to say and this is i'm not saying that there's a connection between the two but maybe there's a direction moving out of this would it be fair to say that because of the way that we emphasize the sacrament now especially in terms of its forgiveness i, I don't know how to word this without sounding like i'm attacking it which i'm not but that because we so emphasize the forgiveness end of the sacrament open communion almost becomes an act of evangelism, if that makes sense. And I know most don't argue that way. I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. I mean, help me out here. I think communion, communion is understood to be good for people, which it is good right. for faith. There's also warnings. I mean, there's, there, there's also the clear warning from the scriptures, from the apostle, saying not to partake of this if. Right. This is why some of you are sick and why some of you are dying. And I know that's not what you're saying. But the point is, what what has been given, you know, that, that can be proclaimed to both believer and non-believer, that can be given to both believer and non-believer, and that is the preaching of the word. And we forget that. We have so downplayed preaching as a means of grace that we forget that. That that, that if you want someone to, to ultimately come to the Lord's Supper, well, not ultimately, but to eventually come to the Lord's Supper, you bring them in by proclaiming the Word of God to them and then by teaching them. You don't start by communing them and expecting something magic to happen. Right. And maybe maybe the better way of putting it would be the speed at which we, we try to get people to the table maybe flows out of an emphasis on this aspect of the sacrament. I mean, 
Do you see what I'm getting at? I I totally do because I think about the relative, you know, if I, if I had two files and one was the file of all the stuff I've ever heard in sermons or elsewhere about the blessings of Holy Communion, and then I had another file that was the material that I've received, heard, whatever, about the dangers of partaking of communion unworthily, which which are actually, you know, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, those are actually, those should be relatively balanced files. Sure. But if, if you read Walther on communion, uh, those those are also pretty balanced files. You, you neither want to refuse the blessing of communion to the penitent sinner, but not, but you're very careful not to give what is holy to dogs. But if I think about my experience, yeah, the, the blessings of communion stuff, I hear tons and tons of stuff about that. So I just don't think nearly as much. This is just me personally. I don't think nearly as much, despite what I know the Bible says, about how communion is, could harm somebody who is partaking unworthily. It doesn't mean I don't believe it. It means I'm not thinking about it. So when people think about communion, they're not thinking about something which could be potentially dangerous. Yeah, we probably have more ink spilled in modern times and more breath wasted talking about non-gluten-free wafers or hosts as a as a harm to potential communicants than the actual harm that the Bible mentions. And and it's something we should probably uh, take note of. You know, but here's the thing, guys. We as Lutherans, we as Christians of the biblical confession believe that we receive the true body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the sacrament of Holy Communion. When we're conscious of that, as as pastors and therefore as stewards of these mysteries, should that color the way we think about open or closed communion? Yeah, because something to notice about open communion is that it originates and predominates in church bodies that do not believe that. Any church body, including churches which have no semblance of closed communion anymore, like the Episcopal Church, used to have closed communion because they had a very seriously intense confession about the reality of Christ's personal bodily presence in the Lord's Supper. And therefore, they could not just hand out promiscuously what was meant only for the people under the care of the one administering the supper. Open communion is a natural result of not believing that really anything is happening in the Lord's Supper. Closed communion is a natural result in practice from understanding that high and holy mysteries are taking place are present among us by God's will and word uh, in the Lord's Supper. That has to color everything we do because it also means that we don't get to decide, you know, and I, and I want to flip this on its head because closed communion is often said to be a kind of tyranny. It's in fact the exact opposite of a tyranny. Open communion is tyranny and you take what is God's and you use it for your own you know, emotional ease, you use it for your own purposes, you use it for your own thoughtless administration of what is holy. Closed communion is to treat what is holy as holy, meaning it is God's, I can't do whatever I want and give it to whomever I want based on whatever feelings I have at the moment. Closed communion is actually respectful of the fact that this is not mine. Open communion has no such idea. 
Yeah, just to, to echo what you're saying, I mean, if we literally believe that this is Jesus Christ present with us, for us to just hand out to anyone, you know, in an open communion style without any sort of oversight is literally to hand God away, to put it in that stark of terms. And, and if I can put this in the most simplistic terms. <laughs> I thought I was doing it pretty simplistically, but go ahead. You know, we look at the flannel graph <laughs> in Sunday school. Go on. <laughs> and we think, oh, hey, Jesus is up there, but it's not the same. And we think about all the time, what would what would Jesus do? If Jesus was right here right now, what would we do? How would we act? And everybody's like, well, Jesus is here spiritually. Or Jesus is omnipresent, and he is, because he's God. But in the sacrament of Holy Communion, Jesus is present in a way not entirely different from when he was here preaching and teaching for those 30-some-odd years. It is a reality. This is Jesus Christ incarnate that you are receiving and who is present in the sacrament of Holy Communion. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is real. Jesus Christ is what he said he is. He is what the Bible declares him to be. And his presence in this sacrament is true and real, regardless of if you believe that or not. There is truly your Lord and Savior present for you. Now, you should fathom that, or try to fathom that, because you can't truly. But at least recognize that, that that's what you're receiving in the Lord's Supper, that you are communing with your fellow believers, but above all things, you are communing with God the Son in a real, substantial way. Not merely spiritual, not ethereal, but truly receiving his body and blood. Christ is there. And sometimes you just have to say it in those terms. And clearly, because we gloss over it sometimes. Yes, he's truly present. Yes, it's the real presence. Yes, this. But no, stop and think for a moment. Pause. Pray before you receive the supper. Pray that morning, I hope, before you come to the divine service. Here is your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who you remember so vividly being born when you celebrate Christmas, and the one who you remember so clearly being crucified, died, and resurrected during Easter. This is that man. This is your God here for you truly. And pastor, you are the one whom God has placed to be a steward of that and to administer that sacrament. God has allowed you to be distributed by him. It's, it, it's a profound thing when we, when we take a step back and look at it for what it is. And maybe just to take a little bit different tact briefly, too, if we're going to actually say, you know, I follow after Christ and listen to what it is that he wants us to do, for us then to take his very words and then do whatever we want with them is not to be the servants that we are called to be, but to be Lord and master over the, the very words of God. I mean, it's literally not listening to God doing what and doing something else when he tells us exactly how he intends this sacrament to be celebrated. Right. And, and when it comes to this, it, it's a simple practice, really. 
But as we mentioned earlier, open communion and sort of a wide door to communion even reduces God's word to sloganeering or platitudes. And if there's a recurrent meme at Word Fitly Spoken, it is that we reject platitudes insofar as you know you know what they're used for. And we reject sloganeering. We need to let the scripture speak clearly where it speaks. And sometimes it's not as simple as one verse or two verses or even three verses, right? So we just need to let the Bible say what it says. And as pastors, we need to be bold enough to say, yes, this is what the word of God says. This very, the word of the God who has called me here to proclaim it. And with that, we have to take our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. We'll be back in just a few moments. A Word Fitly Spoken proclaims Jesus Christ in all His fullness from in-depth exploration of Holy Scripture and study of how God's Word has borne fruit throughout church history. Come along with us at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or on Twitter at wordfitly. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zelwyn Heidi and Adam Kuntz, talking CMW Walther and the Lord's Supper. So we've talked a lot about Walther and closed and open altars and that sort of thing. So we're going to move right on in to a related discussion, and that is the subject of confession and absolution. So how does confession pertain to this discussion? Historically, it's intimately connected to the Lord's Supper because as the Lord's Supper deals with the comfort of individual Christians being administered to them for the forgiveness of sins. So confession and absolution, by which we mean, and Walther really means, exclusively private confession, is the way to prepare for the Lord's Supper. It's a practice tied to the administration of the Lord's Supper. It culminates in the Lord's Supper. So Walther discusses confession, private confession, under this general heading of administration of the Lord's Supper because it's an associated practice within the church. In his own time, it's evident that this is a practice which is being revived in Missouri Synod congregations by Walther in his own time. And so he also is very delicate in this matter by saying that you don't have to force people to go to private confession, but it should be allowed. You can't go to a congregation that will not allow you to do private confession. And eventually he envisions private confession as the exclusive form of confession within a Lutheran congregation. Which would be kind of amazing to have a practice like that. But I think you're, we, I mean, we as pastors know, and it's certainly the, the case in many Missouri Synod churches today, confession still continues to be a fairly rare thing. Sure. And it's not something, though, I wonder if we, we often cast it in opponents of uh, private confession absolution, cast it as the pastor somehow lording the congr- the congregant's sins over them, right? Right. As if he's there to just punish the person. But the actual purpose of absolution 
is to forgive. Right. That 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 person would receive the forget the true forgiveness of sins through the absolution. And Walther has rather detailed discussions of what sorts of questions you may ask as a confessor and what sorts of questions you should not ask. For instance, if you have some sort of hearsay about somebody, because the purpose of confession and absolution is the unconditional declaration of God's forgiveness at its end, at its culmination. So you're not there to lord it over anybody. I think the great irony here is that both in the discussion of close communion and in the discussion of private confession, Satan very effectively portrays what is the most sacrificial Christ-like way of being a pastor, which is to individually comfort, sustain, and nourish Christian consciences and life through faithful practice of closed communion and through hearing private confessions and forgiving sins, applying that forgiveness to those specific, very burdensome things within people's lives. And Satan has put within the mouths even of fellow churchmen the lie that somehow those practices are lording it over. They are priestcraft. They are deceptive and you know authoritarian and tyrannical. So Satan has very effectively attached the fatherly, comforting, loving authority of the pastor and portrayed it, even within the minds of many within the church, as tyrannical and awful. And this, I mean, even, I mean, as pastors, I mean, we're certainly aware of this, that when people bring their sins and confess them, I mean, we're very often uh, bearing that burden on our own shoulders and, you know, sharing in the burdens of our, of our parishioners. And to take that burden upon ourselves and to bring, you know, and in that way to bring comfort to other people, to see that as lording it over someone else is, I mean, you're right, it is satanic. I mean, it, 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 I mean, it's crazy. It, it, it would be like saying that because I preach, I believe somehow, I must believe just by virtue of the fact that I'm publicly preaching, I must believe I know everything about the Bible, which is exactly the opposite of one's experience. The more you proclaim, the more you know how little you know and how much you stand to learn. It's just the same with confession. The more you hear of others' sins and the more you understand how mighty and wonderful a Savior Christ is from those sins, the humbler you are. You have absolutely no delusions either about the general human condition nor about your own sins when you are hearing about the sins of others, nor do you have any pride about your own relative sinlessness by comparison to somebody else. The experience of being a pastor, like being a father, is incredibly humbling, and you are constantly aware of your own inadequacies. That's why Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? That's that's a faithful pastor speaking, not somebody who is abjuring his authority, not somebody who is not making some tough calls when he needs to make them, but somebody who is faithfully carrying out the authority God has given him in order to guide sinners to heaven, to lead many to righteousness in the words of Daniel. That's a faithful man who says, who is sufficient for these things? Because that's what happens when you are being faithful. You realize your own inadequacies over and over and over again. Right. With all that being said, then, 
do you think that perhaps one of the ways in which a pastor can better understand his own sinfulness and secondarily better understand the sacrament the ordinary, the sacrament of confession and absolution as the catechism puts it is to avail himself of confession and absolution yeah i think it's very hard to recommend something to anyone else which you do not do yourself so we talked about that in the pastor as evangelist episode it's it's just the same here if the pastor would be a confessor he needs to be someone who confesses now let's take a, let's take a moment there then so how then does a pastor go about finding a father confessor it's very difficult because there might be an issue of distance i, I know certainly with zalwin and myself there's just not that many missouri synod pastors around and then you have to think about your relationship to the person like if the person is your ecclesiastical superior and i know that we're all equal in the missouri synod but everyone knows we're not so i'm not going <laughs> to tell i'm not going to tell my circuit visitor you know all my problems i'm not going to you know go running to my district president because he has some sort of control over my career so to speak Somebody who has a file on you is not somebody you want to be confessing to. I mean, that's the thing about a parish pastor. You don't, you're not keeping files on your parishioners. You know, you're not, it's not a, it's not an intelligence gathering operation, but with somebody who's above you within a church bureaucracy, you know, you don't want to do that. So you have to find somebody who both can hear your confession, does not have some kind of bureaucratic authority over you and is willing to do so and whom you can reach. And so that that takes some searching, but the searching is worth it because then what you find, and I, I found this to be most convenient to do at circuit meetings when the pastors are together anyway, that saves you an extra trip to wherever your confessor is. It's much easier for parishioners because they go to their church and their pastor is there. Yeah, it's interesting that for all the neglect that we have of confession and absolution, it is still present in our ordination vows. Yeah. Yeah. You know, right. uh, that th- that we, under threat of, of damnation, we do not reveal what has been confessed to us in the sacrament of confession and absolution. And that should say a lot to the parishioner about how seriously we take the, their confession and, and how seriously we, we take the absolution. That to forgive that sin is to say that that sin is gone as far as east is from the west, right? And that and that we consider it absolved because God absolves it through these means. And it also shows some of the, the absurdity of thinking that this is an exercise of power. Because to be a judge over the souls of men is to basically try to set right publicly, you know, what has gone wrong, you know, to to exercise that kind of authority in a public way. Whereas as we're saying that we're, you know, bound by oath to take these sins to the grave. That's not, that's not the exercise of power. That is the exercise of, of God working through us, humble though we may be to bring his forgiveness in a way that you can't find anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. Confession absolution is purely an act of grace and it is a gift of God that we ought to avail ourselves of. And, and Walther's clear, you know, you shouldn't 
go somewhere where confession is not available to you. And that's something that kind of blows our minds, right? Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> he he believes that it's a sign on a congregation's part if they are forbidding private confession from being practiced. We're not we're not saying, you know, Walter doesn't say like, well, if 50% of the congregation won't go to private confession, then you shouldn't be their pastor. Yeah, if you don't have private confession every Thursday from 6 to 9:30, then get out of there. Right. He's saying that if you go if you go to a congregation where the pastor absolutely forbids you from confessing your sins to him and therefore forbids you the absolution in 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 the historic private setting, then that's not a very good sign. Yeah. As far as the orthodoxy of that congregation. Yeah, and in. if the pastor is not allowed to do it himself, then the congregation simply does not does not want to have this available and Walter sees it as a very key pastoral tool for doing the work of building up the faithful. Right. And you know what? We'll probably do a whole episode on this uh, in the near future. So let's move on then to the administration of the sacrament then and get down to some some kind of entertaining, I suppose, uh, subjects here. So administration of the supper, the first thing then, what elements ought to be used in the administration of the Lord's Supper? You have to use bread made with grain flour and actual wine. Yeah. And for Walther, he's not really dealing with the question of... Alcohol. Yeah, he's not because you don't have, you just don't have refrigeration. But there are, he calls them temperance advocates, among which are still Mormons who do this. There, there may have been others in the 19th century, I don't know, who are replacing wine with water in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, and the Mormons, yeah, still do that to this day. Yeah. Now, he does mention grain flour and water, but that's really the recipe for the communion host. So what he's saying then is you don't, you can't substitute wine with water, right. which is a Mormon practice, which is kind of a testimony to the power the Mormons had at that time and just how big and how fast they were growing. And we forget about that a lot, just how much the Mormons occupied the public conscience at that time, and they were they were really you know seen as a, as a huge threat to the American population, and by and large the American citizens rejected them. At the same time, they're also converting tons of people to their error to their heresy. So it, it's at least significant enough that Walter is going to mention it, and it's significant enough of a movement that eventually the United States will mobilize troops, and there are lynchings and such in certain municipalities. But we tend to cast this uh, discussion in in the context of the temperance movement, but it's not really full bore at the time that Walther's writing this work. I think that contemporarily, it's you find the same issue with the use of you know non non grain hosts in the Lord's Supper, and also the substitution of grape juice for wine in the Lord's Supper, it's really the same issue. You're simply not yeah. you're simply not mandated to use those things, so you should not. You you don't have the wherewithal to do that because it's the Lord's Supper, not Pastor Jim's supper. So when Pastor Jim substitutes some elements more amenable to modern Americans for any variety of reasons or fears, he is making it his supper, and then it is not the Lord's Supper. Right, right. So we're not free to depart from 
what our Lord has ordained. Right. And he, Walther identifies church bodies that do not believe that the Lord's Supper is his body and blood as doing the same thing with the Lord's Supper that non-Trinitarians did, as we discussed in the last episode on Walther, with baptism, which is they, by their profession of error, they they evacuate the Lord's Supper of its actual significance. He says, actually rather explicitly, that those who do not believe, churches that do not profess the Lord's Supper to be the body and blood of Christ, do not have the Lord's Supper, because they are substituting their own imaginations for the Lord's mandated words and presence. Sure. Now, speaking of the Lord's words, then, for Walter, the Lord's words are very important when it comes to the to the institution of the Lord's Supper and to the rite of Holy Communion. So the elements are consecrated through the use of the verba, through the use of the words of Christ, correct? Yeah, that would be, again, just emphasizing that it is the Lord's Supper. And so as a way of reminding us that it is the Lord's Supper, we bring the verba in and and use them and that way we're emphasizing that this is God's work and not ours. It's not a, a mystical or a magical use of the words. And it's not just, a, hey, we're just kind of talking about this, but a, a rereading of the will. Yeah. So so then what role? OK, you know, do we want to get into the discussion of receptionism versus consecrationism this episode? Or are we going to save that for like six episode for six episodes, I say just later. do it right now because it is pretty important in Missouri Synod history and even to some extent today. All right. Zelwyn was Walther a receptionist. Go. <laughs> I like how you just throw it straight at me because he wants to fight. That's that's what Willie yeah. wants to do. No, I'm going to let you two guys do it. You're going to let me I'm let, hang, you hang Adam, myself. I'm, I'm just John okay. Carson here. I'm going to let Ed McMahon and uh, Charles Grodin here uh, bat it out. <laughs> Yes, Walter was a receptionist, but I'm going to well actually it here. I would say that he is a receptionist in a way different from the way that we often banter that word around in Missouri Senate circles today. Okay, explain. Because when we encounter receptionism today, we very often get this notion that it's not really communion until I actually receive it. Right. It's not the body and blood of Jesus until it's on my tongue. Until I actually, yeah. The moment it hits my tongue and then it's there and then shortly afterwards it's no longer. Correct. I, I think that's kind of a straw man, at least when it comes to Walther. Because for Walther, and I mean, you can fight me on this if you want, and also for some of the other early Missourian dogmaticians, they're seeing it not so much as a, you know, this is the moment when... My when it becomes the body and blood, but rather that it's an insistence on the totality of the sacramental action. And that's jargon out the wazoo. But the idea is, is that if you have the act of the sacrament, you need to have everything present for it to be the sacrament. I, this is philosophical language. I know it, but this is part of the Lutheran tradition. If you don't have the verba, it's not the sacrament. If you don't actually distribute it, it's not the sacrament. If you don't receive it, it's not the sacrament. All three need to be there in order for it to be the sacrament. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it, 
in in the confessions it is a polemic against roman catholic misuse of the lord's supper as a kind of magical object apart from the reception of the lord's supper mm-hmm. so i can so i can stick it into a monstrance parade it around you know, display it for adoration, that sort of thing. And it's still the sacrament. We're saying, no, we actually have to listen to what it is that Jesus says and actually receive it. Yeah. So, so most diplomatic way to put it is to say there's no sacramental benefit apart from eating and drinking. Right. And, and so I think if we leave it at that, we can avoid sort of <clears throat> contest uh, that goes on between two positions. I, t- I intentionally stepped back from this discussion to let Zelwyn, you know, see where, see where he was going to go. Yeah, exactly. Five part screed on the validity of receptionism coming uh, from Zelman Heidi on the blog, I'm sure. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, um, and I should I should virtue signal here by saying that I myself am not a receptionist. I understand where they're coming from because of the high insistence upon the the totality of the sacrament and the the insistence on listening to what it is that Jesus has to say. But I find it becomes a little bit of problematic because it does eventually devolve into a question of, I mean, it does produce what where we find it today. But some of Zelwyn's best friends are receptionists. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, and guess what? We are out of time. So... We're going to continue this later. We're going to get into all kinds of fun discussions about who can administer the sacrament, why the heterodox don't administer the Lord's Supper, all those sorts of fun things in a part two, maybe even a part three. Any last words, guys, before we wrap it up here? Tune in next time for the sequel. I I, I, I think there's some things that we'll, we'll get to, I think. Among them are kind of emergent issues within Lutheranism today, but Walther headed them off at the pass a long time ago, not least of which is infant communion. So tune in next time. Yeah, tune in. And you know what? In the meantime, if you have questions about this episode that you want to hear answered, check us out at WordFitly Posting. That's our Facebook discussion group, WordFitly Posting. Or you can contact us, wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly we're happy to hear any comments questions anything you want send them right to us and if you have any inquiries we'll answer them right here on the podcast i'm willie grills here with zell and heidi thanks adam for joining us as always always a pleasure my pleasure thank you and our audience thank you for listening god love you and god bless